And I'm Jamie. Welcome to Driver Picks the Podcast. Where I pick the podcast. And I shut my cake off. And today we are going to be discussing the 10th episode of Season 5 of the CW Supernatural titled Abandon All Hope. Jamie, what did you think? (laughs) It was a supernatural episode. There are supernatural things in the episode. And I have no idea where to start with any of it. Okay. Neither do I, if I'm being totally honest. This episode is chock-a-block. There is not a single second where something isn't happening. It simultaneously feels like nothing happened and everything happened. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know how it manages that, but it, <laughs> it does. It Yeah, it feels like a slow episode, but like not in a bad way, I don't think, but just in a way where I'm like, whoa, there is still stuff happening. And the whiplash in this episode is real. I think it's the first time ever that we got to like midway through the episode and I thought, oh, the episode's like... Like, that's all the episode we normally get. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, no, there is still, like, another 20 minutes to go here. Mm -hmm. Normally, I would find that be like, oh, like, the episode is, like, not as enjoyable because it feels, like, really long. But in this instance, I'm like, no, no, it feels long, but in a good way. I think it feels long in the sense of, like, oh, my God, so much has happened. You assume that that, like, that's the normal Mm. amount of content we get. Yeah. But we just got, like, double the content in the same span of time. And Two for the price of one. Literally. And I I love it. I love it. There are so many plots happening in this episode. Maybe maybe we start by talking about specific plots. Like, where do we... You're right. Where do we start? <laughs> I think the most logical place for me to start this week is with my PSA of the day. Okay, okay. So, Beth, what do you think my PSA is this week? Here's the thing. I have no idea because there are so many different things happening. Like, I don't know which one you would have focused in on. I literally don't know where you've put your focus. And so that makes it really hard to pinpoint what a PSA could be, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Like, we get Meg this episode. I know you love Meg. So it mm-hmm. could be something that focuses yep. in on Meg. It could be something that focuses in on Crowley, who we get this episode, who I know you've been waiting for, yep. and Mark Shepard, who we love. So yep. it could focus in there. It's lovely it- to see Sterling on another TV show. <laughs> You know, it like it could really go anywhere. We get cult information, we get Lucifer law, we get death, we get Bobby being incredible. We obviously have, you know, Ellen and Joe and like that tragedy. Like there are so many places that you could have zoned in on for a PSA. I am wondering if it's actually a PSA for Ben Edlin specifically. Okay, yeah. I'm wondering if the PSA is to stop killing blonde women in fires for main plot man pain. <laughs> It's completely wrong. Oh, okay. Unsurprisingly. Well, then but... that's my PSA for Ben Edlund, please. And thank you, sir. Ah, uh, yes. Ben Edlund uh, absolutely listens to every episode. <laughs> As he should. <laughs> no, my PSA for the week is maybe don't insult the people that you're trying to work with. It's a PSA for Crowley this week because he's like, work with me, do this thing, but I'm also just going to call you an idiot and a moron the entire fucking time. It's like... No one's going to want to work with you. It's basic professionalism in the workplace. I think the exact quote is, you two at best are functioning morons. Followed by Dean being like, hey, you're a functioning moron. And I'm like, oh my God, great comeback, baby girl. I'm so proud of you. You're you're really proving the functioning moron thing incorrect with your response, which is basically just repeating exactly what he said back at him. Yeah, what a witty rejoinder. Wow. (laughs) Although this is the like, hey, you're a insert xyz Mm. is such a dean like it's something that he does throughout the whole series and i just think it's very entertaining here and honestly the fact that crowley doesn't immediately go yeah look these guys are actually too dumb like we're not gonna actually work together because i don't trust them Mm. 
honestly, he would have been valid in changing his mind. <laughs> what I what I think I want to move on to first is I didn't take very comprehensive notes for some of these. I just wrote down things thinking I'd remember it. And I've got a note here that I think I remember what it's about. I'm so excited to hear it. But now that I'm thinking back on it, it's like, was I hallucinating that? <laughs> like, because that's very possible. I watched this episode at like midnight. Mm-hmm. So there, there is every possibility... Does Dean call Cass Huggy Bear? <laughs> Absolutely does. Okay, good. Glad to know that I was remembering that because no- I just wrote down Huggy Bear question mark thinking I will remember exactly what this is about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they're making choices. I know they are. They continue to the whole show. But then when someone says, oh, so why, why, why do we want Cass and Dean to get together? They're like shocked Pikachu face. Like... Yeah. <laughs> How are you like, wow, some people ship these two dudes when they have one dude canonically calling the other dude Huggy Bear? I'm right there with you. What? Like, I'm seeing your facial journey and, babe, I'm right there with you. (laughs) You you don't get to be surprised when people ship two characters when you have them refer to each other like this. Like, and here's the thing. Obviously, Dean is being sarcastic. Mm -hmm. But it's also, like, the context of the scene is also bizarre. Yeah. It's so funny. The intro of Crowley is one of my favourite intros of all time for Supernatural, purely because it's so unhinged and so ridiculous. For anyone who hasn't recently watched this episode, I'm going to do a, a verbal recap for you, but if you've got the opportunity, I would suggest you go back and watch the first three minutes of this episode, because it's wild. So we start with this like businessman banker, I think he is, and he's like obviously going to make a demon deal, and he says to Crowley, like, look... You know, in my dealings, I have been dealing with this, like, young, beautiful woman. You know, she said that the deal would be sealed with a kiss. And Crowley's like, I know. Why do you think I'm here, babes? And then the banker is like, oh, you know, there's just some things I can't do. And Crowley makes the whole point of, like, you can let go of six decades worth of homophobia. Or you can have this, like, you know, or you can miss out on the deal of a lifetime. It's kind of up to you, pal. And so ultimately, they have their kiss. And you're like, okay, queer Crowley. An icon. An icon. We love him. honestly. The actual, like, interpretation of Crowley as queer is something that we can delve into in almost the same degree as we can Cass and Dean. And actually, I would argue to the same degree. Like, I know you've just said that, but also yeah. I feel like you don't have to, though, because... It's he's... canon in the first yeah. two minutes of his like, character existing. His yeah. literal character introduction is... You want to make out, bro? <laughs> no homo, but, like, <laughs> what if we kissed? Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the unhinged part. The yeah. unhinged part is the insane zoom that they do to Cass, who's spying on this going down, and then got him. <laughs> it's so funny. Look, I will say, though, one thing that I do not so much enjoy, but I'm glad that they did, mm. is they made it so that Crowley is 100% aware that he's being followed. Like, mm-hmm. he, he knows. Like, he has set this up. This, this is his plan. Like, he's, it's not just like, oh, the Winchesters took him by surprise. Because I feel like if they had done that, it would have been like, oh, Crowley's dumb as fucking shit. If he did not notice... Cass being so unsubtle. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. The way that I kind of wish this had gone Mm. is if the scene plays exactly the same, except for Misha Collins is not in the scene. Same zooms, same everything. You you zoom to an empty spot, and then you just hear Cass go, got him. Yeah. And you can't see Cassio because he's (laughs) invisible. Like, I understand why they didn't for, like, it's a visual medium. Yeah. You gotta see Cast to know it's Cast. But yeah. I do think it would have been fucking hilarious to zoom into like an empty space, implying that Cass is currently standing there. I but know. you can't see him because he's invisible. It's so funny. And then the you way just he the... leans out from around the pole. 
I would have just loved to see like the flip phone opening, like in midair. <laughs> got him. I love that. It's just like a floating trench coat. Yeah. Impeccable. Incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah. I also love like obviously Cass trying to like use the slang and he's like, as we speak, it's going down. And like you can hear the air quotes. It's and then that's when Dean goes like going down, okay, huggy bear. And like you know that he's making fun of him. But it's also like because of the context of the scene, which is the whole reason why I just described it for everyone, he could have made a, a reference here. You could have had, all right, Sherlock, you know, you yeah. could have had any of those kind of jokes where it's like, you know, just pick any well-known detective in history. But the fact that they used Huggy Bear, which is not, as far as I'm aware, a reference to anything. All they needed to do was say, you got him, Nancy Drew. Like, yes. Yeah, good job, Nancy Drew. That would have been a, like, obviously like the misogyny. Yeah. You know, but that... Not great, but... No. Oh, but it would be natural. On, in character. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would have made sense. But the fact that they went with Huggy Bear, I'm like, Ben Edlund, I am in your walls. I am asking you why. Not only did they go with Huggy Bear, they went with Huggy Bear as you've got Mark Shepard just making out with this dude. Yeah. While Cass is watching him, and also... The look on his face is gay panic. It always It's is. always gay panic. That, that's, that's what's so beautiful about Misha's acting. <laughs> You can freeze frame on him at any time and the look on his face is gay panic. <laughs> gay panic comes in many shapes and forms. Yeah. <laughs> and Misha Collins has really just embraced the whole spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like the double entendre of like going down. Yeah. The fact that it's worked into it and like that's why Dean makes the joke. Yeah. Like it's so unhinged insane. And then, yeah, you're right. Like Crowley also knows. Yeah. he's being watched. Yeah. And, like, that is sort of also doubled down on because when Cass follows him. I think it's not a jump to say that the reason that Crowley is there sealing the deal is not because, you know, this is a big fish or whatever because it seems like a pretty part and parcel standard deal. Yeah. It's because he wants to be there so that they can follow him. Yeah, the big fish is actually Cass and the Winchesters. Yeah. The big fish is not this random yeah. banker. He's just, like, kind of fun for Crowley to mess with. Yeah. As a, like, a bonus, basically. What actually I love about this episode, and there's a few instances of it, is the way that they show Cass moving. The techniques that they use really do well to capture, like, the way he just disappears and appears, and... The one thing that I really, really enjoyed in this episode is that, A, the dynamic between Ellen and Cass. Mm. Impeccable. I know. Fucking show-stopping, spectacular. I love to see it. (laughs) Um, But my favourite thing is, I think it's Ellen says... Oh, so like, no, it's either Ellen or Joe, and one of them go to Kaz. Oh, so you know how to use a door. Yeah, and like, goes, haven't you heard of a doorknob? It's Joe, yeah. And and he just appears. <laughs> of course I have. He never used the door. I know. It's impeccable. I love... And also, so we're getting to a point now where, like... Luke's and also, the way it was shot was just very fun, that scene. Yeah, like... Yeah, it worked really well. It was very effective. I very much enjoyed that. I don't know if I've ever told you about the behind the scenes of how they do that, but basically... Every time, like, you have a scene where, like, Cass is there and then, like, you briefly pan to another character and you come back and Cass is gone kind of thing, Misha is still in the room. He is dropped to the floor. He is on his stomach, just out of the shot. And it's so funny, like, looking at the behind the scenes because it literally just pans down. He's on the floor, like, am I out of the shot? Like, (laughs) did I do it? It's hilarious. It's impeccable. But yeah, like the camera. See, this is where it really comes in handy that he's the shortest of all the cast members. <laughs> yeah, well, he's still like six foot something. He just looks short by comparison. He's just a short boy. One of my favorite instances of it during this episode is when he looks up through the window at the Reaper, and then we get the transition from him being outside to being inside the building. 
It's yeah. so fluid and you have the like noise cue, the sound cue of like the wings. It's so well done. It feels very fluid. It's very sharp. I think it holds up. Mm. Like the techniques that they've used. Yeah, I, th- I think aged at yeah. all. Like, the the techniques they use to show cast moving. I really enjoy that. That's one of the really strong points for me this episode. I I do kind of love though that it feels like either we're getting information about how Cass moves moves like this, or we're getting information about Cass as a character. Mm-hmm. Because in the first scene with Crowley, like he follows Crowley, and so he comes out from behind the pillar and he follows and he disappears at the same point as Crowley. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's like it's probably literally just like a that's the easiest way to show it to do the same cut point so that it yeah for the effect, but. In canon, it gives us either information about, like, how these sort of creatures move from one spot to another yeah. in terms of, like, they're, like, maybe sort of jumping to a different plane where yeah. distance has changed. So he needs to be in the same place to jump to the same spot mm-hmm. when he jumps back out of the plane. Or Cass is a dramatic little fucking bitch. <laughs> like, there are two readings of Equally this. likely. Yeah. Like, I had the same thought as well when I was watching it. And it's not something that I've ever really considered when because, watching like, this episode before. theoretically, Cass can jump to anywhere. So he mm-hmm. doesn't actually need to disappear from the same point as Crowley. Mm. Well, I think... Theoretically. I think, so either there is a reason why he has to disappear from the same point as Crowley to end up at the same point as Crowley, mm-hmm. or he's doing drama. it for the drama. Here's the thing. I think... That there has to be a reason why he does that. Because I agree. Yeah. Like, that is a good question. Because technically, Cass could have disappeared from behind the pylon. Yeah. But I think maybe it is something to do with, and this is me spitballing, we don't actually ever get canonical yeah. confirmation of, like, the intricacies of demon yeah. and angel travel, right? But I do think that it is interesting as a concept that maybe when they're moving through space and time, essentially. Yeah. Is it wibbly-wobbly? Timey-wimey. Okay. It is indeed. Yeah. What I'm imagining is that you know how there's that thing where, like, if you do, like, magic or, like, and this is across, like, many series, like, not just specific to Supernatural, but it's that idea of, like, you leave a taint, like, there's, like, a mark that magic has been used yeah. here kind of thing. It makes yeah, me wonder I, if, like, maybe they're, like, essentially ripping, the like, a small tear in the fabric of space-time and moving through it to come out at another point. Mm. And so, like, I'm, it makes me wonder if, because they don't know where Crowley is going, that's the point. Price is following yeah. him. So, so is he, he following has a to... trail? Like, can he sense the, the demon essence? Yeah. And so, like, is that why he has to be at the same point? So he mm. can go, oh, yeah, I can sense I the can... tear or whatever, so I can sense where the tear ends. Yeah. So that I can travel through the same path. It's kind of like, instead of thinking of it as, like, a linear thing, it's almost like folds. Yeah. So, like, if you pull apart this particular fold you're going to fall into the next like the other side of that yeah. fold rather than like traveling across like a, a large distance yeah it's not like a tunnel basically yeah. it's like a you open one bit and you just end up in the other section mm. i don't know if that made any sense but no but like and that's, <laughs> that's what i mean like because yeah theoretically he could have just jumped to wherever from where he was standing mm-hmm. so is it like it's either like he needs to be there to be our sense exactly where crowley's gone or mm-hmm. like it's just you know, something specific about, like, limitations of their sort of, quote-unquote, teleportation powers is yeah. probably a good way to put it. Or is it just Cass being a dramatic bitch? Like, I like to think it's a bit of both. I like to think that he really wanted to get a runway moment where his, like, trench coat is flapping. You know, I really think he wanted that drama. But, however, whatever, I do love it. And the point that I was, like, vaguely talking about earlier is that I think that it really sort of lends itself to the reading that Crowley was specifically baiting them. Because when Cass appears where he does, all of that angel warding is up. And, yeah. like, in theory, no angel is going after Crowley. Other than he gives the cult to the boys, 
he's not really doing anything that we There's know There's no of. reason for them to go after Crowley specifically. Yeah. Because, like, here's the thing. They say he was, quote-unquote, Lilith's right-hand man, as if fucking Ruby wasn't right there. Yeah, literally. Supernatural once again giving credit to the man when the woman did all the work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we hate to see it. I am assuming that, like, that entire scene is not because the bank is, like, a big fish or whatever. Mm-hmm. I am 100% of the belief, and I think it's pretty... It's supported by the evidence. It's pretty well implied. Like, it's not explicit. They never say, oh, well, I was only doing this because of that. But I think it's pretty heavily implied that, yeah, the only reason Crowley's even there, the only reason that, like, Cass can even follow him... Mm-hmm. Is because he wants to be followed. Is because he wants to be followed. The Winchesters hadn't even heard of Crowley. Mm. And if the Winchesters haven't even heard of Crowley, I doubt Crowley is at the top of the Angels' watch list. Yeah. Because if he was, I'm sure Cass would have mentioned him before now. Yeah, exactly. Well, to be fair, if Cass was in, you know, a position to be told about Mm. Crowley. But I do really like, like you said before, I love the way they set up Crowley. Because they set him up and he's so cocky, but not in a way where you're like, oh, you're like annoyingly cocky. He's cocky because... He has reason to be. Like, he's not actually necessarily cocky. He is exactly as confident as he deserves to be, considering his position. He literally, like, hands them the gun, and Sam's like, all right, well, I guess I'll shoot you, and then there's no ammo, obviously. And then Crowley's like, oh, yeah, you need ammo. How could I forget? (laughs) Like, I just, I love the dynamic between Crowley and the brothers, because it's so unlike any dynamic we kind of have with them with anyone else. He's in a position where he's not threatening them. No. He's just being like, my dudes, the enemy of my enemy enemy is my friend. And like, he's not wrong. I love Crowley. Mm I am so excited to hear your thoughts. I think I want to start with, I think Crowley is 100% correct that if Lucifer wins, like he's going after the humans first, but he's going after the demons second. Mm. Because... At the end of the day, every demon used to be a human. Yeah, exactly. And yes, he created them, and it gets supported later on in the episode when he goes, oh, they're only demons. Like, That's, I was just going to make that same who point. Who gives a shit? They're only demons. Like, So I think it's 100%, like, Crowley is correct here. Yeah. Like, if Lucy wins... The demons are next. The demons, after he's finished dealing with the humans, the demons are next. Crowley is correct. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination. No. And... Given the way the angels sort of talk about the humans, it's very similar to how Lucy talks about the demons. Mm -hmm. So I would not even be surprised to find out that Zacky Boy and Lucy are working together. Mm -hmm. Because we get, like, specifically, Lucy talks about Detroit and how Sam says yes in Detroit. And I think that you wouldn't get the same detail in Zacky Boy's apocalyptic fantasy for Dean if they weren't at least on the same page vaguely. So I would not be surprised to find out that Zacky Boy, either just himself, is mm-hmm. sort of going against the angels to support Lu- Lucy, mm-hmm. like um, Uriel was in yeah. the fourth season, mm-hmm. or the angels as a monolith. Like a cohort, yeah. As a cohort. They want Michael to win. Like, they, they do. They want Michael to win. But also, like, they will support Lucy in his extermination of the entire human species. Like, mm. At the end of the day, they still want heaven to quote-unquote win. But, you know, if Lucifer just happened to kill all of the humans along the way... Big whoop. Big whoop. I think what's interesting about that theory, and I am happy to elaborate on it a little bit, because we've kind of had some confirmation of this kind of thought process in, like, season four. So the whole concept of the angels posturing themselves as trying to stop Lucifer, whereas the whole time they were actually, like, 
you think we would let Lucifer out if we didn't fucking want him out? Like, like we want to stop Lucifer, mm-hmm. but only after Lucifer has had the opportunity. Basically, they're like, this is the like step by step of the apocalypse. We don't want to stop the apocalypse. We want to stop Lucifer. Well, it's and just, I think they are two inherently different things. Yeah, they've been given guidelines, and they're going to follow the guidelines. And this is the thing about angels: is they're not designed for free will. They're designed to follow instructions. The instructions for the apocalypse were pretty clear. They're supposed to like let it happen. Essentially, obviously, they want Michael ultimately to win, but they don't really care about. You know, collateral damage between then and now. Yeah, because it's still the apocalypse. Like, they only care about the end result being what it was intended to be as per the instruction manual. Like, they don't really give it's a shit. compliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really funny, actually, to think about it that way because it comes back to that discussion that we've had a lot about, like, Dean versus Sam and, like, this idea where, like, for Dean, the means matter, whereas for Sam, oftentimes, he's just thinking about the end goal. Like, that difference in perspective when it comes to trying to reach an end point yeah like do we focus on the means or do we focus on the goal but no, i do i do enjoy crowley and him insulting the winchesters at every step that doesn't like, change icon behavior uh-huh i will say though i am disappointed that we didn't get a lot of crowley in this episode like he's in the first like five minutes mm-hmm. and then he just fucks off and we never see him again in this episode and i was like I don't actually have, like, exact confirmation on this, but I have a feeling that Crowley was introduced in a similar way that, like, Cass was, in terms of, like, he wasn't supposed to hang around specifically. It's just that people loved him, and Mark Shepard is an incredible performer, and Crowley as a character is so fun. Yeah. And so I think that it was one of those things where it's like, they weren't necessarily intending on giving him a much bigger role. It was Mm -hmm. just that he was too good to waste. Yeah. So... Yeah, we don't get him much in this episode, and actually we don't see him for a little while yet, but he certainly does end up having bigger roles and plots and becomes much more of a integral character as we get later in episodes and seasons. No, don't fear, we have plenty of Crowley content. Some of the most iconic lines in the show come from Crowley, and obviously, like, we haven't really talked about it here because this is the first instance, but I fucking adore Mark Shepard's performance. I think he's fantastic. We've talked about it a lot on our Leverage podcast. I definitely think Sterling, Sterling. though, was his audition for Crowley. Yeah. Like, like you see why everyone's yeah. like, oh, they're the same. <laughs> the Mark Shepard extended universe. Yes. Like, <laughs> Before we get off of Crowley, though, there's a couple of other bits that I just mm. want to highlight that I think are just incredible. And honestly, considering we've known this character for a grand total of five minutes. I think you get a really wonderful sense of his character. Yeah. And I think like, that, that is down to, obviously, Mark Shepard's portrayal, mm-hmm. but also Ben Edlund's writing. Yeah. I am a sucker for a Ben Edlund episode and I'm a sucker for Mark Shepard. So having the two combined is just like perfect, beautiful chef's kiss. I love it. Ben Edlund's version of Crowley is... Is peak. Well, I mean, no one else has ever written Crowley. So Ben Edlund's given us Crowley, basically. Mm-hmm. He's created this character. So say thank you to our Lord and Savior, Thank you, Ben Edlund. <laughs> we really owe you this one. Obviously, we have Crowley. And yeah, you're right. We get this really fantastic sense of who Crowley is and you know what he's about, what his priorities are. Like, obviously, as a demon, his number one priority is himself. That's pretty I mean, consistent. he's in sales, damn it. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he just wants things to stay, like, he wants to stick to the status quo, which is funnily kind of what you were predicting way back when. But the issue is it's not the demons, it's only fucking it's Crowley. Crowley, right? Yeah. And so 
it's it's interesting that we Crap do have the same good demon that I had in my <laughs> literally. It's very fun, but I also think that one of the things that sets up his character very well is that when we have like Joe scheming to like get let in, and we have the boys like sort of breaking and entering, Crowley has is listening to this music and he's watching like a I assume a documentary about World yeah. War Two. It looks like. And he's drinking and he's very calm and collected. He knows exactly yeah. what's happening. Yeah. He's planned this. Because he's got a Nokian invisible ink yeah. outside. It looks exactly like invisible ink, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like he put on her a blue light. But and the song playing is Everybody Plays a Fool. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that because I think it gives a great sense of the fact that Crowley literally is Taylor Swift mastermind in this moment. Like he knows everything that's happening. And he's just sitting there literally waiting for it to unfold exactly yeah. how he knows it's going to. And I love that. Because yeah. Everyone is playing a fool in this scenario, literally except Crowley, who is sitting there listening to the song. And I just think that it is such a fun intro for him. You talked about it already, that, like, he gives the brothers the gun and, like, it doesn't have any ammunition. The little waggle he does, where he's like, come on, take it. Like, it's so funny. It's such a good addition. Imagine being that talented of an actor. Like, Oh, God, he's... Yeah, he's just so good. I also think it's really, like... It's such a good addition for the character uh-huh. to demonstrate that the gun works. Mm-hmm. Because he's a demon. There is no reason for, like, yeah. The brothers have just been pretty significantly manipulated and betrayed by a demon. There is no reason for them to trust another demon. So I think it's very, it, it's a really telling character move mm-hmm. that Crowley had planned to kill the two demons behind the brothers yeah. to demonstrate, no, this is the genuine gun. But also, like, not only that, he is showing that he is so comfortable in his own space and confident that he actually doesn't need those henchmen to do anything. He's like, I'm just going to kill them. I didn't need them anyway. I have proven to you in one fell swoop that one, I don't intend you harm. And two, I have the actual gun that you want. And I'm just going to give it to you because at the end of the day, we want the same thing. And... I know that I am so good that if you, I don't want you to find me, you're not fucking going to. It's inc- so it's fascinating, though, that in that way, he's basically more powerful than an angel. Like, because if he didn't want Cass to find him, Cass would not have found him. Yeah. Well, we also learn in this episode that Cass is, like, not at full power. Yeah. Which is interesting. We will get to that. But... I just love that Crowley is, like I said before, like he's so confident, but it is not unearned. Like he is exactly as confident as he is because he has every reason to be that confident. He has a plan and he is going to execute it and it will go well. Like, and he knows that. I also love that the gun exchange is so awkward because Sam and Dean literally are so caught off guard. Like they don't know what to do. They're like, okay. And they're also like, (laughs) because here's the thing, Crowley is a demon who's manipulating them. They're just not used to, like, being, like, the demons being upfront and honest about when they're manipulating them. Like, yeah. It's but he's incredible. also like, well, what the fuck do you, like, obviously. Literally. <laughs> he's like, how about you don't miss, okay? <laughs> Morons. Like, he's like, you know what? If you do your job right, then nothing, none, nothing fucking matters. Just don't fuck it up. Okay? You have one job. Just don't fuck it up. And they don't miss, but unfortunately... The gun doesn't work. The gun doesn't kill everything. So mm-hmm. the kill everything gun, in fact, doesn't kill everything. <laughs> it's a bit of a misnomer there. Maybe it should have been the gun that kills, kills most, most things. things. <laughs> a slightly less impressive title, if I'm being honest. 
okay, so the, the gun that kills everything doesn't kill five things. Yes. So we know one is Lucifer. Obviously, you might not be able to tell me because spoilers. Yeah. I don't think it'll be spoilers, but like I'm just saying, like if it is, like that's fine. So obviously, one is Lucifer. Do mm-hmm. we know if one of the things that it can't kill is Lucifer, as in Lucifer specifically, or archangels generally? Okay, so I, from memory, don't think we ever get any further clarification on what those five things are. I get. I know. I know the face you're making. Well, my, this not- is my assumption: is that the five things are the four archangels and God. Okay. So, like, that is my interpretation. Like I said, we never actually get it confirmed. Do we ever get anything else that the gun doesn't work on? That doesn't fit into the category of archangel or god? Not from memory. But what confuses me about this, right? And I think that this is actually an instance of, like, a supernatural kind of forgetting its own canon a bit. Yeah. Is it's like, okay, would it work on Jesse, the Antichrist? Yeah. Would it, like, we get characters later introduced to other... I think it would be fascinating if the five things it doesn't kill is the four archangels and Jesse the Antichrist. And God oh, is not on that list. Okay. Because why would... I mean, obviously, I'm, like Chuck's probably not God at that point, but why would they have an archangel attached to Chuck if the gun that can kill everything literally can't kill him? I because guess it depends like, on at what point in the timeline you think Chuck, Chuck became God, God or if he's yeah. been God the whole time. It depends on your interpretation that yeah. we will get there. Yeah, I always interpret that as it being it, so it can't kill Lucifer. Obviously, so I'm like, okay, we have canonical confirmation of they that. They tried, one. yeah. So I'm like, okay, so by extension, I would assume it also can't kill Michael. And yeah. then if it's like, well, it can't kill two of the archangels, I would assume it also can't kill Raphael or Gabriel, yeah. who are our other two canon yeah. ones. And then I'm like, well, what's the fifth? I'm like, well, I assume it can't kill God if it can't kill his children. So like, that was my yeah. five. But we also get other like. That would imply that it can kill the horseman, which feels weird. Like, because we also have, like, only one canon way you can kill death. So, yeah. like, okay, theoretically, that would be six, which would then you would think that it also can't kill the other horseman, which makes it nine. And then, so I think. And then that, it's like, is it counting it as, like, it can't kill archangels, mm-hmm. it can't kill horsemen of the apocalypse, it can't kill God, it can't yeah. kill an antichrist. So, more like species rather more than like species rather than individuals. Which could be the case yeah. because we also get, like, we get. Because, and the way he says it is, I'm one of five things that the gun can't kill. Yeah. So, it could be, like, five types of things, mm-hmm. could be the unspoken word in there. Yeah. Or I'm one of five, ten like, individual mm-hmm. beings. There's a couple of interpretations. That was always my initial one, and then I was like, mm, seems a bit flimsy, because I would argue there are plenty of things. Though that... I do want to see them try to kill Gabriel with a gun. <laughs> I just, I think it would be just really... Just for fun. Like, they know it doesn't work. No, no, I, 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 I think they should try it thinking that, oh, like, maybe Lucifer's different from Gabriel, yeah. and then it doesn't work, and he gets pissy again. He's like, we have established this. You cannot kill me in a way that matters. Why don't you kids learn your dang lessons? Exactly. Because they keep on going, oh, well, we'll just kill him. You've gone, kill him. You have tried multiple times. <laughs> so and then funny. it's like, maybe, may, like, would it kill a trickster god? Like, if Gabriel was genuinely a trickster, yeah. would it kill? Would it kill? Yeah. yeah. And so there's lots and lots of questions here. I personally, like I said, always assumed it was the four archangels and God. But I do like your interpretation of, like, rather than being individuals, it's like a species. That does give us a bit more wiggle room. Yeah. Which makes a lot more sense, especially because, like, we get other, like, beings later down the track that I would argue if, like, you couldn't kill Chuck, you definitely couldn't kill these other, like, because yeah. they're along the same kind of, like, like match for power sort of thing. Yeah. And there is definitely no reason why Lucifer wouldn't know about these other beings. Even other monsters that we get down the track, like, I feel like you would have, like, 
for anyone listening at home, I'm thinking like the monsters from particularly the plot of season seven. I would argue that you probably couldn't kill them with the cult. We also, I'm pretty sure, only have one known thing that can kill them. So I think that it's a bit flimsy yeah. there. And that's why I asked, like, whether it is, like, I am one of five things, is in I am one of five beings species. that the gun can't kill, or I am one of five things, is in species that the gun can't kill. Yeah. I want to know, actually, it'd be interesting, I don't think we ever see it tested, but whether or not the cult could kill, like, a seraph, like a lower category of angel. Like a cast? Like a, like a, like a cast. Like a cast. <laughs> I don't think we ever see the cult turned on an angel other than in this instance. From memory. So So then is it just like angels? It could be angels as a species. To be fair, again, angels, like, there are limited ways you can kill them. Yeah. So, like, typically it's by angel blade or, like, if you're archangels, like, there's other... It's not really spoilers, so I can tell you. But, like, so you have an angel blade that can kill an angel. Archangels have their own blade. Okay. And it's, like, specifically only an archangel yeah. blade can kill them. So, basically, the, the cult's issue is it's too generalized. Yeah. It, it like, kills too wide a range of things. Which means that the more powerful stuff, it can't kill because it's not. Yeah, it's like dispersion of power, yeah. I suppose. I mean, it depends on a whole bunch of made up mumbo jumbo. Mumbo jumbo. So okay. really, like, it doesn't mean shit. But we can, we can, we can, we can, we can make that generalization. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, point is, cult doesn't work. I do really like the fact that Lucifer is like, "Ow! Why would you do that? Where did you get that?" What what I find so funny about that is like Lucy in that scene reminds me of Meg in the scene where it's you so out shot of, me like exactly <laughs> or even like Ruby in the scene where like she shows up at Bobby's and Bobby's like trying to work out how to make more ammunition for the gun and she's like I liked this shirt it's same energy and same I love energy that. Lucy how? and his two daughters literally literally what we get even in this episode we get Meg. And we know we get. I think I like let Meg less now because they're giving her daddy issues. <laughs> like I still love them, obviously. I'm like, obsessed with that take. Like they're yeah. giving her daddy issues now. It's like, can we have one character in this fucking show that doesn't have daddy issues? Literally, Meg, Cass, and Lucy all in one room. It's like the only person missing who has more daddy issues is Dean. It's wild. They're like, we don't know what to do with this character. Guess I've got to give it daddy issues works every time before um i do think it is a really interesting interaction between lucifer and meg because obviously we have i think it's a really great example of how lucifer is playing everyone everyone. yeah and this is something that is pretty consistent for his characterization as well across the series is that obviously he is treating meg like you know like oh you're my my child my you know my star pupil or whatever and then we have crowley being like he literally does not give a single shit about Mm. us he like we are expendable to him and then you obviously get the scene you mentioned before where he's like well whatever they're just demons but you have him presenting this like one view to meg who is fully falling for it by the way which i think is a bit of a disservice to her character i think she's better than that it's okay it opens up the door for her to have a glow up Mm, mm -hmm. it opens up the door for her to be like well actually now i see through your bullshit like yeah you got me in the first half not gone by Did you have anything in particular that you wanted to talk about with Lucifer? I know that I have a couple of points I want to make. Not with Lucifer, but we were talking about Meg. So I'm going back to Meg. For okay, we can circle back around. We can I, jump over the joint. The, Lucifer feels like a longer discussion. So I want to talk about Meg first. Mm-hmm. Obviously, also just because I prefer Meg. Like, <laughs> Meg's the real MVP. I just want to say I love Meg and her doggos. Like, Why? Meg and her doggos, like, they are, like, 
near and dear to my heart. Uh-huh. I love that she got her own doggos. Like, they are clearly emotional support doggos for what mm-hmm. the Winchesters have fucking done to her because it's ridiculous. <laughs> I also love that it is Meg and, like, Meg is starting to come back because I think it's one of those things where Supernatural really likes to have, like, a character who's relevant to a single plot. Mm-hmm. And then that plot's over, so they just disappear. They just go bye-byes. Like, you're not going to see them again. Like, that plot's over. Like, it's finished. And so I'm glad that after the Azazel plotline, mm-hmm. Meg didn't just disappear. Because yeah. like it was very much like Meg and the Azazel plotline were very heavily connected. Yeah. So I like that they're bringing her back. And I'm just hoping that they connect her to the main plotline at least semi-decently like they did in the first season and the second season with Meg and her plotline. Because it just, I don't know, like I just, I love Meg, but I just, I feel like I miss Nikki Acox. Yeah, and it's like that's valid. I fell in love with Nikki Acox's Meg. Yeah, like Meg was my, Meg. Meg still is my Bobo, but it's like it's just different, you know. And I'm I'm really glad because we're starting to get like more Meg from Meg, which is yeah. I'm loving. But it's also like I just I hope they're not just gonna put her into this like you know henchman demon position because she was so much more than that, you know. Over the series, and bearing in mind it is 15 seasons long, and I haven't watched all of it consecutively in a while. This is my first full rewatch. I would suggest that the most interesting and complex demons that we get in the series are Meg and R. Crowley. Those are the two that come to mind. My Blobos. Your Blobos. So because, like, let's face it, it Crowley is going to be it, a Blobo. It's Mark Shepard. Yeah, exactly. Like, there it was no, inevitable. There are no other options. I would say that they have the most interesting plot lines, the most interesting character, individual arcs, and I think that they also just. The way that they're portrayed by both, obviously, Mark Shepard's Crowley, but also Nikki Acox and Rachel Miner. Rachel Miner and Nikki Acox, I think, have different strengths. Yes. Their performances are inherently different, which is, I think, why sometimes it's difficult to sort of see yeah. them as one character. Though but, this episode was, like, it was starting yeah. to click again. Well, like, we had a little bit more time to actually see, see her, her on screen. Yeah. And see her interact with different other characters yeah. and in different contexts and things. So, which the Meg cast fucking said. What? Yeah. If, if I had had a supernatural bingo card going in to this show, <laughs> Megan casts almost kiss before Cass throws her into the fire. Fu- <laughs> you mean you didn't see that coming? No. <laughs> Neither did anyone else. <laughs> the Meg cast dynamic is an interesting one. I feel like it's not going to be over now, though, until Megan Cass actually kiss. And I feel like they need to do, you know, the thing that they do with Dean anytime Dean kisses anyone? Like... Instead of, like, the cast reaction shot, the Dean reaction shot. Obsessed with this. The cast Meg unresolved sexual tension element of this episode is one that I remember not seeing coming when I first watched it. And honestly, is such a fun choice from Ben Edlund. I think that it makes sense for Meg. Cass, it's confusing. (laughs) Like, it goes against everything that we've had established for Cass. Other than the fact that obviously in this, and this is a really great actually example of what a good tactician Cass is, because I don't think that that is something that gets a lot of attention specifically devoted to it. Like we don't get like an exposition of like, wow, Cass, you're so good at plans. But like we have seen consistently now that Cass is like, he just sees the bigger picture and he's so good at manipulating the scenarios to being what he needs them to be. Mm -hmm. And like, The fact that he is able to manipulate Meg in this scenario, like, I kind of don't love purely because I just think Meg is better than that. Yeah. But I also love because I think it's, like, it's such a good example of Cass being so fucking good 
you can see why he has survived this long, yeah. I guess, you know? And, like, we see his ta- his tactics in, like, instances like the monster at the end of this book where he's like, It's a real shame that I can't help you, but this is exactly why I can't help you. What I will say, though, is seeing Tactician Cass, it makes more sense why Cass is the one who got Dean out of help. It's something that we're, I'm assuming we're never going to actually see, but it's so baked into that plot. It's like, yeah. well, there has to be a re- like. I think it's not very compelling if the reason that Cass is the one who managed to drag Dean out of hell is just because Cass got lucky. Yeah. Like, that feels like a disservice to the story and to Cass as a character. Yeah. So seeing this adds evidence of, oh, this is why Cass was successful when no other angels were. And actually Lucifer in this episode says to him, what an interesting thing you are. And it's because he is just, he's he is different. Oh, actually, sorry. He says, what a curious thing you are. And yeah, because Cass is different to the other angels. And like part of it is like, obviously he has incredible tactician skills, but it's also like he has that loyalty to the Winchesters and to the cause that like devoid from heaven, he's forging his own path. He's no longer following the manual that all of the other angels other than basically Lucifer and Anna have followed to this point. Even like Anna, we haven't heard from in a a while. It's been a hot minute. It's been a hot minute since we heard about Anna. Lucifer says to him, I rebelled, I was cast out, you rebelled, you were cast out, almost all of heaven wants to see me dead, and guess what, if they succeed, you're their new public enemy number one. Which is actually, like, you're making a face at me right now. Like, I I think Lucifer's full of shit there. Like, I'm sorry, like, I don't believe that Castiel is gonna be public enemy. Like, Anna's right there. Like, come on, guys. Again, discounting the strong women who are breaking the laws. (laughs) That's a good point. However, I do think that Lucifer makes a solid argument, which is, like, obviously he is manipulating Cass, because that is the whole point of this conversation. Obviously. It's not thinly veiled at all. He's basically telling Cass. He might as well have a a big neon sign that says, I am currently manipulating I am full of shit. Yeah. (laughs) But I also think that the interesting thing about Lucifer is that he is so good at spinning stories because he's not actually wrong. He's just presenting the information in a way that is compelling in his favor. Yeah. Because he has a point like, yeah, Cass rebelled and he is on, for lack of a better analogy, like heaven's naughty list, you know, but also... It's coming to the apocalypse. Like, heaven's got bigger shit to do. So I think that he's trying to scare Cass into, you know, betraying the Winchesters. But I think that's less of a trying to play Cass for the sake of playing Cass. I think it's more of a, well, I want Sam. Yeah. As Cass says, you're not taking Sam Winchester. And my exact note is, he's my boyfriend's emotional support codependent brother. (laughs) Um, I had a different note, which was, it's nice to see Cass being passionate about Sam. It's nice to see that he cares about Sam. It might only be because Dean does, but it's nice. It's nice to see that Cass is like, no, you are not going to touch a single long hair on Sam's perfectly manicured head. Yeah. And I do love seeing him passionate about that. One of the other things that I really appreciate about this scene in general is one, Cass looks so confused about the fire when he first, he's like looking around like, the fuck, how did I end up here? And I'm like, love that for you. Record scratch. Yeah. (laughs) 
I also love that, you know, Lucifer is basically interviewing Cass. Yeah. And he's like, Castiel, is it? You know, and this kind of... He's sort got of, a very lucrative position that he'd like to offer a specific age. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of almost like he's trying to build a rapport kind mm. of thing. He says, you know, Castiel, I'm told you came here in an automobile. How was that? And it's like a genuine curiosity. I love the answer is literally just slow. He's like, um, slow and confined or something. Like, it's so funny because, yeah, like, it is bizarre that Cast the Angel traveled in a car. Like, and I kind of like that Lucifer is, like, kind of genuinely asking him, like, what was that like, though? Like, you know, it seems like a weird choice. On sort of, like, a slightly different route, though, one important thing that we do learn in that scene is that Lucifer's vessel is failing. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that in particular. Look, I feel like it's just, like, a plot device. They have to have a reason why it has to be Sam. Yeah. And they have to have a driving force behind that. Because if they sort of had it as, like, oh, well, you know, Sam needs to replace him, but, like, there's no time crunch. There's no... Mm -hmm. Like, it, it gives Lucy a good reason to be desperate. Yeah. And I think the road they're going to go down is Nick is the only, like, even halfway compatible vessel that he has on earth mm-hmm. like he needs sam because nick was his only other option and his only the other option is not gonna cut it yeah it's basically term. like plan b like temporary yeah. solution nick is a band-aid but yeah. he's got no other band-aids in the box he can't just jump from nick to another vessel because there are no other vessels mm-hmm. and even if he did it would be like yet another band-aid what's that taylor swift yeah. like band-aid over bullet holes like it's yeah. just it's not gonna cut it it's a temporary solution that's not going to hold out for very long. And I think also to add to the desperation of it, they're going to have it be like, oh, no, this is the only bad aid. There is no yeah. other halfway compatible vessel that he could use. Like, he has to go from Nick to Sam. Yeah. He can't be, like, just vessel jumping, essentially, until he gets Sam. He has to go because mm-hmm. there's no one else that he can put in between those two. Yeah. I also think what's really interesting about the implication, because, like, you can see him, like, having, like, physical signs of the vessel failing. I think it's interesting that he can hear the bullet hole, but he can't heal the signs Mm. of the vessel failing. Well, what I was going to say that I think is interesting about this is that I think that it actually, and this is, we don't get confirmation of this, this is just, like, an interpretation that I have, but I think it lends itself to the reading that Lucifer is actually weakened in Nick. Because he is expending energy constantly trying to keep the vessel together. Yeah. Because there is no reason for the vessel to be showing signs of wear and tear because we know that angels can just heal the vessels. We've seen Cass do it with Jimmy we a million times. We've seen him literally heal Nick from the bullet hole. Yeah, exactly. And but so, like, he needs to heal that. Like, yeah. he has to, like... Well, he doesn't need to, I suppose. But he's choosing to heal that specifically. But I think that he would have to expend so much additional power just trying to, like, stitch the vessel together like keep the fucking atoms from splitting apart yeah that it actually weakens him because he has less power that he can expend on other things yeah that's my like reading and i think that is part of why it is so important that he has his actual vessel that he has sam because he fits in that one it's he like this have one to is slightly about... too small so all of the seams are getting close to bursting exactly so he has to stop and stitch them up yeah, like exactly. So it slows him down, it's distracting, it takes power that he cannot afford to be expending if he's going to go up toe-to-toe with Michael. Like, he needs to be at his full capacity for that. I want to jump from here to Sam. Okay. I feel like that's the next jump. 
There's I, so much going on in this episode. We could basically jump anywhere, but yeah. <laughs> I want I want to talk about Sam. I went to Stanford, Winchester. And the fact he couldn't work out that she was just listing off bomb ingredients. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm sorry, but sweetie baby boy, what? <laughs> you... <sighs> I know. Like, they're no. not hard dots to connect at all. It's very clear what she's suggesting. Yeah. No one else needed clarification. <laughs> it's another classic example of, like, they always, through text dialogue, tell us that Sam's super smart. And, like, they have other characters be like, I thought you were the brains of the Winchester duo kind of thing. And, like, make fun of Dean for being stupid. But then you have scenes like this where Sam's, like, clearly the only person who is not like, putting these two mean? very you clear puzzle pieces propane, together. Like, a lighter, and some fucking nails. Like, yeah. <laughs> click it together. Come on. Like. I also have another note about Sam being a bit of a doofus. In the lead up to the attack from the Hellhounds, they're, like, walking around. They're basically patrolling the town. So you've got um, yeah. Dean and you've got Ellen and Joe and you've got Sam. Dean, Ellen, and Joe are all walking around holding their guns at the ready so that if they come across something, they can quickly aim and fire whatever. Sam, for some reason, is, like, swinging his fucking gun around, holding it in one hand, like, just, like, walking with it, essentially. And I'm like, my bro, what are you doing? All right, while we're talking vaguely about the bomb, Mm -hmm. I do want to say that this is, like, the opposite of low-sodium freaks. You know, like, they, they walk into the house and they're like, we have literally nothing here. We have no salt, nothing that we can use. Yeah. Low sodium freaks. They walk into this hardware store. They're like, yeah, look at like this salt. Wonderland. I know. Here's the thing is it's really wild for us as Australians to just see giant bags of salt in a hardware store. Like, we don't go to Bunnings or Mitre 10 to buy bags of salt. No. Because we don't have things like ice on the roads very much. But, like, obviously in, like, the US and in Canada and in cold, colder climates, yeah, you would just have bags of salt in your hardware store. And I actually think kudos to Ben Edlund for thinking of having them hide in a hardware store. Yeah. Because, like, you could have had them hide anywhere, but it is kind of perfect. And I think if you actually watch the scene back, it's Dean who's, like, in here. Yeah. So it shows, like, Dean's tactician side of, like, Spotting, like, hardware store is our best bet for safety, knowing what's going to be in there. And actually, I wanted to talk about Dean's leadership in this episode and the way that, yes, he takes charge in that sense and he's like, we're going to go in here kind of thing, but also in the way that everyone automatically is deferring to Dean. Mm -hmm. Not consciously, but they are doing it. So, like, Dean obviously has the idea to use the radio to call Bobby, which I also loved. I thought that was really clever because, like, it's a way to get around, like, the mobiles not working and stuff. And I also love that, obviously, this is something that they have had set up forever. Like, they and have... obviously, these... Bobby would be monitoring it given what's what they've got to do. Yeah, like, clearly, Dean knows the exact right radio wave to, like, Call tune into. And... He knows what code to use, you know, and him and Bobby obviously have this, like, set yeah. up as a backup, which I love to see. I also just think it's fun to oftentimes a lot of like media particularly now a lot of it is like you have to conveniently have people's phones not work because the obvious solution in real life is like oh well you would just use your fucking phone yeah so i kind of like that they found a creative way to get around just calling bobby like i like that they made it a little bit trickier but without making it impossible yeah i think that's fun they made it so that Dean actually had to have a time to stop and be able to get in touch with Bobby mm-hmm. and not just ring him on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I also think that there is something to be said for the way that Jensen is gripping 
the right speaker. Here. Yeah. Because he's Dean is just not he's about to break down. And actually I do wanna come back to this and talk a little bit about Dean and Bobby in this moment. But first of all, I want to make my initial point, which is about Dean's leadership. So Bobby basically says to Dean, No, what is the next step? Like what do we do? And he like puts him back on that like you need to objectively think about the situation you're in. Stop, step back, work out your next step, and then you can plan from there. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Don't worry about trying to jump 10 steps ahead. Yeah. Work out your next step. Go from there. And then we can go forward. Yes. And then later we have Joe who is talking about how, like, look, I can buy you guys some time if we're going to get a shot at the devil. And then she specifically is says, Dean, we have to take it. She's not talking to Ellen. She's not talking to Sam. She's talking, she specifically singles out Dean and is like, you know that we have to take it. And then also Ellen does this too. When they're saying goodbye, she specifically singles out Dean and says, Dean, kick it in the ass. Don't miss. Both of them in those instances are identifying Dean as like the leader in this position. Neither of them are talking to Sam at any point here. And I just think that's really interesting. I realized that I forgot to actually ask you about it when we covered our episode on the end. But I'd mentioned, I think, in Free to Be You and Me, or maybe one of the previous episodes, like the first couple of this season, that it's really interesting to watch, like, Dean's leadership in this episode and, like, the way that that translates to 504 and we see him in two different kind of mindsets and leadership. And then here, people are deferring to him yeah. to be like... And he's straight up like, no, I'm not leaving Joe behind. Like, like that is his first response. It's like, no. Yeah. That's not happening. Though, while we are talking very briefly about 504, I do think it's really funny because in this in this episode we get that Bobby is the one who's, like, insisting, like, no, we have to have a photo together before the end of the world. Like, if we're going out, we want a photo together, mm-hmm. which they burn at the end, which I think is kind of pointless. But I've always liked it as, like, the imagery of, like, a hunter's funeral when they didn't have a body. But I'm yeah. also like, you had one copy of that fucking photo, photo guys. Like, like- <laughs> But... You just know that the photo of Camp Chikatakwa in 504 was Bobby's idea. Yeah. And this is I agree. canonical confirmation of that. He's the photographer. Yeah. He's that one person in the group who's like, guys, we got to take a photo. Stop, guys, we got to take a photo. Yeah. And actually, I really love that scene where they take the photo. What I particularly like is that Bobby's like, no, no, like, we need to take a photo for, you know, yeah. prosperity. And then Cass says... Like, everyone's, like, in, like, an okay mood. Like, you know, yeah. and they're all sitting around. And he's like, Bobby's right. Tomorrow we hunt the devil. This is our last night on Earth. And then all of their faces just kind of drop. And then they're just standing there. And the photo is so, like, it's such a weirdly comedic moment. Like, it's very serious. But it's also quite funny. I just love the fact, though, that Cass is 100% trying to steal Dean's move. Oh, my God. This is the third instance of Last Night on Earth speech yeah. from Dean. And first of all, it doesn't work again. He's got a one in three hit rate. So the thing about the Last Night on Earth speech is that it's like, this is now the third instance of him using it. And it's like, hmm, just things that make you go, hmm, you know? Like, I don't think I have to elaborate on why this is an important point, but like, it is. Like, Anna, Cass, Joe. Like, Anna and Joe. Anna, Cass, and Joe, canonical love interest. Yes. It's again. odd, though, that one of the three is for one that they're like, oh, there's no homo there. Yeah, literally. Literally. It's like one of these things is not like the others. It's just one of those choices that they've made that just makes you go, hmm. 
you know? But I also do love that Joe is like, if this is our last night on Earth, I'm going to spend it with some self-respect. Okay, I want to quickly jump back to Lucifer. I feel like I talked a little bit about him, but like, there's more to talk about. There's so much to say. I really just quickly want to say, though, that the scene where Lucifer's like standing there and he's like digging the grave or whatever to like raise death and Sam and Dean are standing there horrified is exactly the scene from last week where Sam and Dean are digging up the body. And fucking two dudes who are pretending to be them are, like, standing there horrified. Like, I love the moment where Lucifer stops and is, like, leaning on the shovel, like, I don't suppose you'd just say yes now, right? Like, save us some fucking time. (laughs) I think it's so fun. Like, weirdly, like, at this point in the show particularly, I quite enjoy Lucifer as a character. I think that he's one of those villains that is just very entertaining Yes, he is the villain and you yeah. don't like him because obviously the things that he's doing and his motivations are horrible and bad and terrible yeah. and completely contradict the protagonists. He's but a bit he's... like Zacky Boy. Yeah, but like you just like him. Like he's just fun to watch. His dynamic is really interesting. The way that he taunts the brothers is fun. He's got some good humor in there. He gets to use the word freak. There's also the point where, you know, Sam's like, what have you done to these people? And he's like, oh, you know, I was quite generous you know, a demon for every, every able-bodied man. And Sam's like, what about the rest? And he just kind of like gestures at the pit that he's burying. And he's like, you know what they say, women and children first. And like, it's horrible. It's obviously an atrocity, but it's also like, it's a bit funny. I think you're right though. I think we do kind of have to talk about his monologue to Sam. Did you have any particular thoughts? I have got the whole thing written down. If I like. have no specific thoughts because I had empty no thoughts. Okay. Well, maybe I'll give the quote, and then I've got a couple of notes about it, and we can maybe bounce around around of that. Yeah. So, at this point, Dean is, like, unconscious, which is odd. Usually Sam's unconscious because of head trauma, but anyway. That's because Dean's not Lucy's blobo. No, you're right, actually. Normally, it's, like, the opposite way. <laughs> normally, normally, Sam's the not blobo, and Dean yeah. is the blobo. So, normally, Dean gets to stay uh, Awake for the monologues? Yeah. yeah. Lucifer says to Sam... I was a son, a brother, a younger brother like you, and I had an older brother that I loved, idolized, in fact. And one day I went to my brother and I begged him to stand with me and Michael, Michael turned on me, called me a freak, a monster, and then he beat me down, all because I was different, I had a mind of my own. And obviously, like even Lucifer says, like he's like, any of this sounding familiar, Sam? And like, obviously they're retroactively writing it to sound familiar. And it works. It's incredibly perfect. Because... Freak, I mean, obviously, like, Sam and Freak stems from way back when. We've been I feel like I hear the word Freak and Supernatural and my, like, alarm bells in my brain go, There was a poster in the background of one of the episodes of the Winchesters and it had the word Freak on it. And I tell you what, we talked about it for, like, ten minutes. Obviously, they're using the word Freak. This is something that we've been talking about for seasons. It's nothing new, but it's worth pointing out in this instance. When he says, I went to my brother, I begged him to stand with me. And, like, that's obviously reminiscent of the end of season four and Sam saying, like, I need you to, like, stand with me on this and Dean being like, no. Not with fucking Ruby there, I'm not. Exactly. Then what happens is obviously Dean makes that phone call from the gaslighting room. You know, he says all those nice things. But Sam, what Sam hears is Dean calling him a monster, which is what Lucifer has just said. He called on me, he turned on me, wouldn't stand with me, called me a monster. And the thing is that Sam still doesn't know that Dean didn't do that. Lucy Zaki Longcon. Lucy Zaki Longcon. I knew you were going to say it. Yeah, right? So it's very interesting. Unless, like, Lucy's travelling back in time. 
Because Lucy wasn't released at that point. No, he was still in the cage. Lucy's still in the cage at that point. There is no reason for him to know... That exact... No. That exact phrase. Because I don't even think, like, it's not like Ruby overheard the phone call or anything. No. Like, Sam was there basically alone. So the only way he could have heard that is if he heard or got told how it got translated, translated. by the angel. So there's that. And then he ends on the note, all because I was different, I had a mind of my own. That is actually a direct Sam quote. And I want to say that the mind of my own bit comes from, I want to say asylum, when he's possessed by Dr. Alicott. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. It's also giving me Sam coming down off of demon blood vibes when he hallucinates Mary and the stuff she said in his hallucinations. It's a long con that Lucifer is playing here. Yeah. Like, he's drawing on stuff that has been baked into Sam from the get-go. Yeah. And so I just think that it is so interesting that we hit those three points in that order. Could it be Scarecrow? And, like, Meg. Meg. Yeah, Yeah. actually. I would have to go back and check, like, the transcript or something. Yeah. But, yeah, I think... Because I wouldn't be surprised if some of that he didn't get from Meg. Because, like, Meg... Meg's a queen who's been all over this since day one. Meg also calls Sam a freak in Scarecrow. Like, looking at the transcript. So, Freak might actually not be... Like, obviously, we know Freak because Freak. But, like, Freak might be coming directly from Meg. Yeah, like, because she spent so long playing Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> literally, actually, in the Born, in, um, Born Under a Bad Sign. Especially early couple of seasons. Meg plays the brothers quite a bit. And, like, I would say that they're getting some stuff from Ruby, but Lucifer Rose, Ruby died. Like, there is no overlap there. Yeah. So I'm just having a look at the Scarecrow transcript. And we do get, we don't get the exact line, but we do definitely get that concept alluded to. So Meg says to Sam, it's just because my family said so. I was supposed to sit there and do what I was told. So I just went on my own way instead. And then Sam says, I know how you feel. Then Meg goes on to say, at least we're living our own lives and nobody else's. So it's definitely alluding to that concept. So even if it's not the exact quote from that episode, it's definitely associated, which is interesting given that Meg is obviously in this episode and working with Lucifer. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that it is really, really fascinating that that monologue is so specific to Sam and particularly specific to themes and struggles that we have seen him going through the whole series to this point. I also want to make a quick note that there are like, are like God rays behind Lucifer when he's raising death, when he's like doing the little incantation and like talking to the demons. And I just think that both it is gorgeous and fascinating because he's kind of positioning himself as like a God. Well, and he's been doing that the entire time. He's like positioning Mm. himself as God to the demon. And so it's fascinating looking at Lucifer's relationship with his demons that he created. And then also looking at God's relationship to the angels which he created. Mm-hmm. So it's like it, it's interesting to see how it mirrors because we obviously we haven't actually got any confirmation about anything about God. You get the sense that at least in God's quote unquote plan, angels are sort of seen as like disposable almost. Yeah, it's funny actually that you say that because we even get Megan this episode saying to Cass like your dad's a deadbeat, but mine, mine walks the earth. And so it's like this idea that like God has abandoned his children, but Lucifer has come back for his, but he hasn't. He's just making them think he has. He's come back for his children in a very distinctly John Winchester coded way. <laughs> like he's come back to abuse and neglect his children. Like let's let's be clear there. He's come back for his children. He's come back to treat them as nothing more than disposable soldiers, foot soldiers. He, he's come back to treat them as nothing more than disposable foot soldiers in his 
quest for revenge. Mm. And that's actually part of why I think the Cass and Meg dynamic is so interesting, because they obviously are coming from wildly different sides of the spectrum, but they're actually having a very similar experience. Like, both of them are loyal to a father who is like, Ooh, can't wait for Meg to rebel then. Fair, honestly. And they've, they've now distinctly paralleled Cass and Meg. So, like, Meg getting raised from hell? Like, <laughs> obviously we have Cass falling from grace, but, like, I don't think that really applies yeah. to Meg. Meg redemption arc when? Yeah. Cool. Well, you know what I want? Meg Crowley besties. I do love the concept. I think I'm, I'm not going to, like, touch on it too much. But, like, and they're both constantly trying to, like, manipulate one arm up each other, but, like, Neither, like, they're the same level of smart, so it just, like, cancels each other out. And they're just, like, having fun with their, like, Machiavellian schemes, like, trying to, like, get one up on the other person. I love And that. they're just, like, having a, a, a genuinely, like, they're having a vibe. I love the casual use of the word Machiavellian. Yes, no, look, I love Meg. I'm really glad that we're at a point now where we have Meg and Crowley, because I think it is really, really fun to have recurring demon characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we've got, obviously, Cass, and we've had, like, Banner and Zachariah. And not just, like, Henchman and... Demon number four. Yeah, like, an actual yeah. character that we get to see fleshed out and have a personality and, like, motives and stuff beyond just, ooh, I want to kill them kind of thing. I want to talk about the picture burning in the fire. And we've already ooh, briefly yeah. touched on it. I actually and have another note about this, too. This is not anything that's actually, like, it's not important. I, w- I want to I wanna outline that straight up so that you're not disappointed in me. But I find it fucking kind of hilarious. Like, they do the zoom in on the photo, right? But it's so blurry. Yeah, it's blurry. But they're also zooming in on, like, Ellen and Joe. But unfortunately, between so Ellen and Joe is Dean. So it's not a zoom in on Ellen and Joe. It's a zoom in on Dean. The funniest part is that Dean is pulling a face. So it's like this really somber moment. And <laughs> that face. Which is arguably not somber, but I'm so glad you point this out. Because, yeah, the zoom is in on Dean. And we actually get a tiny snippet of Dean's thing in that moment. They only oh. use it They only use it for, like, a second. Mm-hmm. But I went back and I made sure, and I listened yeah. to it twice, they definitely do use a moment of Dean's theme in that scene. So it's interesting, because, yeah, they are actually zooming in on Dean. And we, I think, maybe we should talk about John and, and Ellen a bit in a moment. Yeah, yeah. And then, it, like, it does kind of pan over to Joe so, a little bit. But, like, the first chunk of the zoom-in is, like... Dean's front and centre. Because he's between them. It's, like, and they're trying to zoom in on both of them simultaneously. Mm. It's, like, to do that, you have to also zoom in on the dude between them. And But because he's between them, he looks like the focal point of the zoom-in. Yeah. And so it's really interesting that they use Dean's theme. And I do think that Joe's death in particular does hit Dean harder than it mm. does Sam and Bobby. Like, obviously, they're all distraught. Yeah. But I think that it is particularly emotional for him for reasons that we'll get into probably right now, unless you have other things to mention no, about the picture. Yeah. Okay. So, Joe. When they stop killing off fucking good female characters, mm-hmm. I will know a little piece. Until that point, I'm just ready to go into the writer's room and start stabbing people. Yeah. Because it is fucking ridiculous that in an episode that features, what, six characters really prominently? Four of them are dudes, two of them are ladies. The two people who die are the ladies. And you could argue Meg here as well. Meg ends up thrown into fire and wa- literally walked over. Yeah. I don't think Meg's dead. because I, no, no, I No, no, no. She's not dead. She's definitely not dead. But it's also like, come on, dude. Like, do you really have to treat the ladies in that way? Like, I get it. But, like, also, here is the thing. 
I did, I mentioned this earlier, I did have the note written down, more women die from main plot man pain. And I yeah. do hate it. I really do. I'm like, I will say though that this does feel like more purposeful than what they've done previously. But because they've done it so much previously, it's just like... It's really frustrating. Yeah, It's giving me Malleus Maleficarum vibes. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, for fuck's sake. Like, I get it. And I'm going to I'm gonna be honest, I fucking tear up at this scene every damn time. Can I assume, though, that this, this is not, like, a permanent death? I'm not going to yay on either. Okay. Because I feel like Ash isn't going to be a permanent death, but he's been dead for a while now. So, I don't know. Like, I'm not told that death isn't that permanent in Supernatural, and I keep on waiting for it to be not permanent for anybody but a Winchester, mm-hmm. and it just keeps on being, like, permanent to this point. You know what I mean? Like, they might come back, but maybe that's part of, like, the Dean says yes to Michael, and then they win, and then, and, like, he gets everyone back but Sam. Maybe they can fit into that theory of fun, because it's just like, stop killing off people! I want to just put out, like, a major kudos to both Samantha Ferris, who plays Ellen, and Alona Tal, who plays Joe, because this scene fucks me up so hard. I don't think... I've watched this episode a bunch. I don't think I've ever not at least teared up watching this play out. And actually Ben Evelyn too. I think that the writing is great. I think that the performance is literally phenomenal. Something about it, for me, this is the most upsetting death we've had to this point. It's just... It just hits different. And I think part of it is... The fact that, yes, I fully agree, like, it's so fucking annoying to keep killing off women and, you know, man pain and blah, blah, blah. But I like that Joe has the autonomy. I like that Joe gets to be like, can we be realistic about this, please? I like that she gets to decide that her death is going to be meaningful. I like that she gets to have that sort of final say and be like, no, you guys need to think about this and like we'll use this kind of thing like if I have to die let's at least make it not like not worth it but do you know what I mean yeah. like and I think having Ellen choose to stay with her is actually really really interesting the moment where she says like I will not leave you here alone we're actually going to come back to that later in this season let's just compare Ellen's parenting with John's parenting for a minute mm, okay let's face it John would not do this for his kids no Point made. Yeah, I don't think we actually have to elaborate on that. But no, you're correct. He wouldn't. But I think Dean would do it for Sam. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think that that is... That just says something. The way that Joe says to Ellen... Like, because she immediately is like, no, like, we're not doing this. I'm not leaving you kind of thing. And Joe says, this might literally be your last chance to treat me like an adult. You might mm-hmm. want to take it. And, like, that's when Ellen just breaks. And mm-hmm. I just think it's so good. It's so good. And... Obviously, like, Dean and Joe has been, like, alluded to a lot the whole time that we've known Ellen and Joe's characters. Unfortunately for me, I think Joe's actor just looks quite young. So it kind of weirds me out because she looks, like, significantly younger than Dean. Mm. I don't think she actually canonically is. I don't think think she canonically is. Yeah. And that's why, like, it's probably just a me problem Mm because I'm bad at telling people. But she looks so much younger than Dean. I personally don't find that. I feel like they look, like, relatively matched. But... Like, it could just be an individual thing. Yeah. Dean and Joe is really interesting. I personally think that of all of the characters that I, like, ship with Dean, Mm. when I first watched the show, Joe was the only one outside of cast that I ever saw an actual possible, like, long-lasting relationship existing. 
Because, like, you know, you've got Dean and Cassie and stuff, but on ultimately, like, that's never going to work. But, yeah. like, Joe's in the life. Like, they have a really fun, like, bantery relationship and stuff. And, like, I think that, for me, the possibility of Dean and Joe being in an actual relationship is just one of those, like, it was always just wrong place, wrong time. But I think that if the show had wanted to go in that direction, it actually would have made a lot of sense and had the potential to be an actual meaningful romantic connection for both of them. Unfortunately for the writers, they cast Misha Collins. Yes. Like, they destroyed any possibility of yeah. any. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. and here's the thing. I think if they hadn't cast Misha Collins, Dean Joe might have been endgame. Like, obviously, <laughs> that's a different, different thing. But, like, Honestly, I think what really destroyed the possibility of the Dean possibility realistically ending up with anyone else <laughs> was casting Misha Collins. Like, that is 100% what did it in. Like, and that's why, like, they just have this chemistry that you can't. You can't be like, yeah. It's just so organic. Yeah. You can't teach it, I guess. I just think that Dean and Joe. Joe was the only other potential romantic partner that I ever saw yeah. making sense for Dean in a long-term capacity. Mm. I think, like, when we have characters like Lisa and Cassie yeah. and, like... Only other way is to fucking brainwash Dean and fucking stick him in, like... Like, it's a terrible life, him, basically. Yeah, and or stick like, him into, like, the white picket fence with, like, or like Cassie or Lisa or Carmen or... In, like, you know, what is and what she's Carmen has a, a distinct disadvantage in that she's not fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> Like, and those sort of situations are the only way you could be like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to have the white picket fence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think Joe... Got to brainwash him a little. Which is why I think that there was the possibility for Joe, because she was already in the life. You don't have to brainwash him for Joe. It wouldn't be him endangering her by, like, dragging her into the, like, world or whatever, because she's already there. And And also, she's actually more likely to drag Dean into it than he is to drag her into it. Yeah. And I also think that she gives him a run for his money. She yeah. doesn't let him get away with shit and she calls him out on things. Yeah. And I think that Dean as a character needs that. Yeah. Like, I think that he needs someone who's actually going to pull him up on his shit. And that's part of why him and Cass make so much sense. Yeah. Because Cass is not afraid to be like, listen here, you motherfucker. I love, though, that Cass has proven right in this episode that you're not going to fucking kill Lucifer with gun. Mm-hmm. And, like, obviously Cass doesn't know. Otherwise he would have just fucking said. But he was also, like, very skeptical about this whole plan from the start. He was like... Yeah. Well, Cass knows his brother. Anyway, we're getting Which a little get, sidetracked. Yeah. Did you find Ellen and Joe's deaths, did you, were you emotional about it? Or, I mean, they're not, it's not so much your blue show as it is mine, but I'm curious. I, like, it's sad. I think what didn't probably help is the fact that I'm also mad about it. Here's the thing. If Joe and Ellen today were the, maybe the, the second and third female characters that we'd had die from man pain. Okay. But this whole show is fucking, like, but like built on women dying for man pain. Fucking Mary, Jess, what's her fucking name from Heart? Like Madison. Madison. There is so much in this show where it's just like, oh yeah, another woman's gonna die for man pain. Like, I'm just not impressed by the fact that they decided out of basically an ensemble cast of six people and the main protagonist. Because then you have Lucy and Meg on the side, mm-hmm. who are, I I count them separately. But of the six, two of them are women, and they are the two that happen to die. Yeah. And, like, here's the thing. Obviously, like, the trio, like, the main three, like, Sam, Dean, Cass, have, like, plot armor. I think there's also something to be said. And this is, by the way, in no means trying to defend the show or the decision to kill them, because I also disagree with the decision. 
But I do think that there is something to be said for the fact that they thought this was the final season. Yes. Like, part of what they're doing is tying up loose ends. Yeah. And, like, it sucks that this is the way they chose to do that. But I do think that that is something that is worth considering. I think this is a a really good ending in terms of, like, okay, they died, but they died with dignity. They died by their choice. Mm -hmm. And they died trying to save the world. I have nothing against them dying. Mm-hmm. What I have is like this annoying thing of like, yeah, the but this is, record. you couldn't think of another way to end a female character's journey because this has been the ending of how many female characters Basically journey? every single one. Like Joe and Ellen were our only remaining reoccurring female characters. Except other Becky than Meg. And Becky. And Becky. I'm sorry, but we've had Becky for what, two episodes? We've had Ellen and Jason Cece too. Ruby died from, well, not mad pain, but like Lilith. Not, not for man pain. Like, Lilith died for man pain, not in the same way as like a Mary or a Jess, but like ultimately Lilith yeah. died for man pain. I forgot Anna. Anna doesn't die for man pain, but yeah. I think also it says something about like the tragedies of war because I think sometimes it's easy to forget that they're literally at war in a sense here. And so I think that it does mean to like highlight the reality of the situation that they're in but i also wish they'd found a different way to do that yeah yeah again if this was like you know the first female character like major female character death we'd had in a while okay but we just they just keep on killing off female characters okay well maybe let's get off of this maybe mm-hmm. let's talk about some of the more positive joe and ellen moments in this episode because mm-hmm. we do yeah. get some fun stuff i will just say again ellen cast dynamic my beloved i was not expecting her to see it Plot-wise, unnecessary scene, but character-wise, it's fucking fascinating. I Yeah, I love that. No, I love the scene where we have Cass drinking with Ellen. It's interesting because not only is it a fun, like, little character moment where we see Cass kind of loosening up and getting to spend time with characters that aren't just Dean, I love that we get to see him do that line of shots and then be like, I think I'm starting to feel something. Hilarious. Like, the delivery is perfect. The setup is incredible. Ellen and Joe's faces are iconic. And also it sets up something that does become canon for angels, which it is really hard to get them drunk. You know what I want to see? Dean is struggling for money. And you know how he like hustles pool? Mm-hmm. You know how some people bet on like who can drink more? Oh my God, yes. Like, and him just being like, <laughs> Cass, you've got to, you've got to, like, we, we need the money. Like. Take one for the team, pal. Take one for the team, pal. And then you've just got this like tax account looking dude. He's <laughs> just drinking everyone else under the table. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I also kind of want to know if you have a thought on this. Obviously, Cass drives with everyone else into the town, right? But he doesn't ride with Sam and Dean. He rides with Joe and Ellen. And I kind of love the, like, dynamic of he literally just met Joe and Ellen, but also they are now besties. And I kind of want to know... I think it's because he thinks Dean's driving is bad. (laughs) I kind of want to know, what do we think they talked about on the ride over? What was the discussion like in that car? Dean's last night on Earth speech. (laughs) And they're like going, fucking snap. He's used it on both of us at this point. (laughs) That piece of shit. No, like I genuinely, I'm like, are they playing I Spy? Are they talking about drinking games? Are they talking about tactics? Are they like, you know, are they playing 20 questions? What are they doing? Are they gossiping? 100% gossiping. I just think it's so fun. You know what I realized we were robbed of in 504? What? Ellen and Joe. Oh my god, yeah. Imagine Ellen and Joe in Ch- Camp Chautauqua. Imagine Dean choosing to feed Joe, Ellen, and Cass yeah. into the trap. 
And then you could have had even stronger parallels this episode of him refusing to feed Joe and Ellen to the Hellhounds. I have a couple more things I want to cover. We've kind of danced around them a little bit. Mm. One quick note where I just, I like that they show them making up the bomb. Like, I like that that's a practical thing we get to see them actually do rather than just it suddenly appearing. And it, it takes like, you know, 20 seconds of screen time, but I think it's 20 seconds well used. I want to talk about some of the imagery in the background of the shots. I don't know if you noticed this, but when they first show up in the town and Cass is like looking around like, oh, there's a bunch of Reapers here. Yeah. First of all, the Reaper gang, kind of a bit of a sausage fest. Like, did you notice? Yeah, there's especially no considering women. the only prominent Reaper we've met so far is Tessa. Tessa. They're all dressed impeccably, though. Those suits are very sharp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very in line with the Reaper of Faith. I wonder if in the Gang of Reapers, Hannah's from Raising oh Conditions' favourite character, the Reaper from Faith, is yes. there. Yes! Do you know what? It's my headcanon. He's there. There's so many of them. He's 100% there. You know what? We should have had them on this episode just for that. Fuck, I can't believe we didn't think of that. Well, I didn't think of that. Hannah, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think that it's weird that all the Reapers are men. It's like the opposite of like the Cass orgy from 504. I'm like, yeah. you've missed out an opportunity of like putting some men in this orgy circle. Like they missed out an opportunity of putting some women in this Reaper gang. Like, come on, my dudes. But there are also some interesting set pieces in that scene. I don't know if you noticed any of them. I'm just going to run through the three that really stood out to me. Is it Zacky Boy in the curtains again? It's not, but it is religious in nature. So okay. that's interesting. I probably didn't spot it then. So there is a massive, like, billboardy thing of the American flag, and it says, anti-God is anti-America. Okay. Which is a fucking choice. No further comments. But there is also, like, a movie theatre style, like, signage that yeah. where it's, like, the white with, like, the letters you can place in there. You can't ever see, or at least I couldn't find a scene where you could see the full frontage of the movie theatre to get the full, like, line. But it's something about the first church, and it's what all the Reapers are facing. Like, they're standing looking towards it, as says the first church. And then when Cass looks up and sees that one Reaper disappear from the window, and then he appears in the window, you can actually see when the camera pans up to look at Cass, and he's in that window, the side of the theatre has a line that says something about Jesus saves. So, like, it's very, like, a lot of, like, religious kind of imagery focused around where Cass ends up trapped, where he confronts Lucifer and Meg. And it's just really interesting, I think, that you've got... That had to be intentional. Like, they didn't just rock up to that random town for shooting and that just happened to be there. They would have intentionally placed that. And so I think that it's interesting to have that kind of, like, religious phrasing. the supernatural set designers, you're reading too much into (laughs) it. Yeah, all right, I'll take that. But, like, I think it's interesting that they have that. Particularly they have the Reapers specifically facing towards... Yeah those lines and i just think it is a fascinating choice particularly because we get death described not just as like death of the horseman but as the angel of death multiple times from bobby in this episode so i just thought that that was an interesting choice speaking of bobby i do want to talk about how bobby is impeccable and i like him bobby like anytime bobby's in an episode you can pretty well guarantee he's like the most valuable cast member if they're gonna be successful, it's because Bobby sorted their fucking shit out. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's never never Sam or Dean who are, like, working the shit out of the flight. It's, it's Bobby. Bobby really is out here doing the most. And I think that what he does really incredibly well in this particular episode, other than the usual stuff where he's looking up the law for them, but 
when Dean radios into him and Dean is like, it's not good. Like, I don't think, and he can't even get out that he doesn't think that Joe's going to make it. Like, he just basically says, it's bad. Like, I don't think. And then he like breaks. Bobby is obviously also very upset about this, but he's like, it's okay, boy. That's why I'm here. And it's such a like calming paternal moment from Bobby. And I think that it is so interesting when you think about like what John might have said in that place. Bobby was just being exactly what Dean needed in that moment. And I just thought it was really lovely and a really, a really nice scene for those two characters, you know? One last thing that I wanted to touch on is the line about Sam. And Dean says, Sam Winchester having trust issues with a demon. Better late than never. And Sam goes, thank you again for your continued support. <laughs> I just think it's iconic. But we also get Sam saying, since when have we ever done anything smart? And I'm like, damn, Ben Edlin really out here calling them dumbasses this whole episode. <laughs> I do love that for him. I, I do enjoy Crowley as a vessel for the writers to be basically like... They're actually kind of dumb. Yeah. We love them, but they're dumb. Yeah. <laughs> That is all that I wanted to touch on, I think, for this episode. Did you have any final thoughts or feelings you wanted to share? I am all tapped out for the day, I think. I have no nothing else that I really want to share, no other problems to make yours. Okay. <laughs> In that case, how would you rate this episode of Supernatural, Season 5, Episode 10, Abandon All Hope, out of 5? I think I'm going to give it 3.5. That's what I was expecting. Yeah. I think it could have been worth a four stars if it gotten more Crowley screen time. But, like, I was so excited for Mark Shepard and I saw Mark Shepard and we had him for, like, two minutes and then he was gone. And I was like, okay. I personally really, really enjoyed this episode. If I was to rate it, I'd give it, like, a 4.5. Yeah. My reason being that I think that the actual quality of the production in this episode is really yeah. high. I think that there's some great characterization. We have some fantastic lines. The Joe and Ellen death scene while infuriating, is also, I think, one of the most emotional death scenes we get in the series, yeah. let alone the season, like the whole track of the show. I think it's it's one that always gets me. And I also love Crowley. I love that we get Meg. We get some fun like developments from Lucifer and Cass. And I just think it's, it's a very well-made, cohesive piece. Yeah. It's just not a, a style that I'm a massive fan of. Is what it comes down to. It comes and down I to it's not comedy, so you don't like it very much, is honestly what it boils down to 90% of the time. And I want to be clear here, though. Like, it is a high 3.5. I just don't think it quite justifies a 4. Like, I think it would definitely be a 4 if we didn't have Meg getting thrown onto the fire by Cass. Yeah. And I think it would be a 4 if we got Mark Shepard for more than two minutes. And if Joe and Ellen maybe didn't die. Yes. And I do want to say a very special shout out to the editors of this episode because their use of editing to make like Cass appear and disappear, so good. It, yeah. It's such a smooth effect. It looks really effective. It really does pay off his sort of like otherworldliness without being like In impossible face. to follow. There are so many elements happening in this episode and I think all of them are just really well executed. Yeah. Okay. The next episode is called Sam Interrupted. Do you have any thoughts, feelings, hopes, dreams, predictions? Well, I'm assuming it's a reference to Girl Interrupted. Yeah, well, probably. <laughs> I don't know enough about Girl Interrupted, though, to make... I'm looking up Girl Interrupted. Do it. <laughs> because I, I have a feeling that's what it's a reference to, so knowing what that's about will help me yeah. work out And what I'm going to classify this as not spoilery, so go for it. Here's the thing. If I just Googled Sam Interrupted... That's um, cheating. That's cheating. <laughs> But if I Google 
girl interrupted. That's not cheating. We've got a movie about a girl going to rehab and making friends. Mm. Sam Demon Blood Relapse is Ooh. my obvious thought. Okay. I see where your brain's going. Cool. Do you have any other thoughts or feelings? Not really. I'm assuming that's what the reference is to. So yeah. Well, I mean, we've got Sam specifically in the title. It's in reference to Girl Interrupted. It's a, I see the logic. Yeah. So I think either like Sam Demon Blood Relapse or like Sam's going to make some new friends. <laughs> love that for Sam. He doesn't get many friends these days. Or that's haunting at like a mental asylum and instead of doing like the normal thing and pretending to be like guards or whatever, they do they the false imprisonment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like the leverage the 12 step job. I get that. <laughs> Our next question is, do you think Cass is likely to be in next week's episode? I feel like yeah, like in the aftermath of this, he kind of has to be there. Like it makes no sense for him to not be there. To be fair, I think this has been your argument for basically every episode. Like, it just doesn't make sense for Cass to not be there. He's so integral to the plot, and you are correct. However, unfortunately, Misha's contract did not allow for him to be in every episode. So, but you know, the likelihood you think is high. At where they left this episode, it seems like they're they're doing the mid-season thing, and they're actually boiling down and doing some plot stuff. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Cass needs to be there for the plot stuff. Like, okay. it doesn't feel like next week's episode is going to be filler. That's valid. In that case, that... Oh, you look like you had another thought. It's not the question, but I do want to point it out that I think Crowley will maybe be in next episode as well. Because there is no way in hell Crowley doesn't call them out for their bullshit not being successful. (laughs) Yeah, it's their fault, definitely, that the cult didn't kill Lucifer. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so very much for listening. Hopefully you have enjoyed listening as much as we have recording. And if you wanted to get in touch with us outside of listening to us Babylon on your ears for an hour or so every week, you can always find us on any of our social medias. All of the links are in the description below. And while we're at it, Spotify has introduced a cool new feature where you can actually let us know exactly like what you thought about the episode directly through Spotify. So if that is the platform you use to listen to our episodes, feel free to hit up that feature as well. And we will get to see all of your comments about our episodes. Congratulations, you got a new way to leave us reviews. Woohoo! <laughs> if you did want to get in touch, some possible topics of conversation could include... Look, by the time we release this, I'll know if I was correct or not. So, like, if I am correct about next episode, Sam Demon Blood Addiction, celebrate with I... Do you think this episode also could have used more Crowley? I would like to know what people feel about the Joe Ellen death. Is it one that makes you cry? Is it one that makes you angry? Is it one that makes you a little bit of both? Does it not impact you at all? I'm interested. Because Jamie and I have similar, similar but different, different. Yeah, yeah, like I'm primarily upset. She's primarily mad. But we both have a little of both. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. And hopefully we have you back next week for Sam Interrupted. Bye! Bye.